This is Lead with a Question. I would say just inviting that space to look at life, world, as this is an experiment. We know we're going to die. (laughs) We know that suffering is inevitable. How do we use knowledge transfer to create wealth and ownership and equity, to distribute power, so there is less unnecessary suffering. Hi, I'm Rob Callan. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. At BraveCore, we believe in turning pain into power. This can mean different things to different people, but at its heart, the principle teaches us that instead of avoiding a challenge or remaining stuck in our pain, we choose to let it fuel our future. Now, today's guest is one of the best examples we've seen yet. Whether winning a fight with cancer, grappling with questions about her life's purpose, or digging deep to redefine hardships of the past, she's seeking sustainable, meaningful ways to empower the global citizens of tomorrow. Together, she'll help us ponder the question, how can we create opportunities for future generations? It's a conversation with impact investor and advisor, Bonnie Lynn, on this episode of Lead with a Question. My story kind of follows uh, a monk, an entrepreneur, and a teacher. Um, There was this 1960s monk that moved over from China to San Francisco, was teaching meditation to hippies in the 1960s, and he started this amazing monastery um, just two hours north of San Francisco called the City of 10,000 Buddhas. And my parents, um, who was a teacher and an entrepreneur, both moved me and my brothers there when I was 11 years old. And so I spent six years growing up in that monastery, graduated valedictorian in a class of six people, (laughs) and then went on to um, attend classes at Berkeley um, in the late 90s um, in classes of 600 people and pursued pretty much a workaholic lifestyle, 90-hour work weeks, traveling the world, doing global supply chain and mergers and acquisitions. Um, I was married at the time and raised two beautiful stepchildren. Um, And then hit a wall about nine years ago um, when I was diagnosed stage one cancer. And that prompted me to question all of my life choices up until that point. And so um, made the decision to live in Australia for a year after treatment 
Trump got elected. I never came home and um, spent six years there really rediscovering who I was, not as a role in society, but who I was and what I wanted to bring to the world, what my purpose was, and uh, recently just relocated back to the Bay Area. Um, I now work for a nonprofit um, called Silicon Valley Social uh, Venture Fund, doing impact investing, and um, but have and bringing together my 25 years of experience working um, around the world in uh, private sector, uh, investing for the Obama administration and in economic development, um, and working with multiple stakeholders in the public and private sector, and then. Now, how do we move that $72 trillion, um, in intergenerational wealth, history's greatest wealth transfer to help uh, change the world for the better? That's quite a story. Yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah, and, and, and the idea about um, intergenerational wealth transfer, can you tell us a little bit about kind of how, how that idea first became a, a driving force for you? Yeah, so it started with my mother, who's a teacher. She was the fourth daughter born into a very wealthy political family that elected the first Democratic president of Taiwan. And um, and she wanted nothing to do with politics or marriage. And so became a teacher and, and uh, came to the U.S. But um, it started with this idea in, that's very deeply rooted in our family around um, knowledge transfer for the next generation um, through education um, at, uh, as a way to get towards towards uh, up economic and upwards mobility. Um, and, you know, our entire family just being very dedicated on my father's side, an entrepreneur, um, growing up on um, in the poor side of the tracks and, and uh, coming to America after watching one too many John Wayne movies. And... Uh, building the American dream. He borrowed the money for the plane ticket and within three years he bought a first house, a BMW, um, established his own business. Only in America, right? <laughs> so that intergenerational wealth transfer idea comes from um, all the wealth that was created in um, Taiwan, where in the 80s and 90s you saw the rise of the semiconductor and personal computing industry. Um, you know, semiconductor uh industry accounts for about 60% of the world's market share. All of the wealth that was created during those two decades are is, is held in single families for the most part in Asia. And so if you've seen crazy rich Asians, there's a, there's a portion <laughs> of truth to that. <laughs> um, and, and now we're facing this critical moment in history where um, everyone's, you know, the media is kind of spinning about what's going to happen to Taiwan after decades of this right. uh, incredible economic um, progress and advancement, is, is China going to invade Taiwan? And, um, and, and you see this movement of, of the private wealth moving their capital out of the country. Um, and, 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 and the next generation, not having, having grown up with the benefits of that wealth, um, not not knowing how to really connect the dots of um, how do we bring human capital, financial capital, and more importantly, social capital um, to affect ch real change. The wealth might have been created in one industry, but what's the next generation going to do with that? And with the seventy-two trillion that's currently transferred from the baby boomers to the next generation, um, 
we have just a huge opportunity in front of us, right? To um, to connect the dots and figure out how we um, utilize that capital for the greater good. Fascinating background and pedigree you have, Bonnie. We we appreciate you sharing that with us. What what is one of those exciting projects that you're getting pitched currently? As far you know, on, the, on that social front, that you would like to share with us. You mean um, in terms of uh, social ventures? Sure. Yeah. So um, Silicon Valley um, Social Venture Fund, which we call it SV2 for short, has a really unique model that immerses um, our donors directly in grant making and impact investing work. And so rather than having a team of professional fund managers source the deals, we ask our donors, what are the causes and issues that are near and dear to your heart and you care about? That. And then we yeah. work together to 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 source those deals. And inclusive investing is one of those um, things that we're taking a look at now. And um, I'll just speak to um, uh, one of those um, a venture fund of uh, uh, that that was established by a man named Lizier. Um, called Zeal Capital Partners, and they um, they established the fund um, at thirty million. We participated um, in the early days, and their entire thesis was wrapped around this term called inclusive investing. And it's it's it speaks to the power of they can create this word of inclusive investing, and now it's become a movement. Now it's become a theme, um, and several ventures have adopted it. But how do we invest in diverse founders, uh, delivering innovative solutions that transform the future of work um, and create accessible financial services for underserved markets. And so there's just that very simple investment thesis alone clarifies, right? Um, now we just got a no, uh, word yesterday that they are, um, they've successfully closed their second um, fund too, um, and they're doubling down on that thesis. Um, so out of that 72 trillion that's transferring into generational wealth, we've got um, 1.2 trillion of that um, in impact assets under management. 31 billion of that is venture capital, but only 2% goes to diverse founders and women of color. Um, so that's that's an interesting, when we have to take a look at the numbers, anyone who's, who's trying to solve problems around addressing the bias, Right. Um, our decision making and um, putting action towards um, towards that change. It's pretty amazing, Bonnie, how you've been able to channel your purpose uh, towards this uh, you know this space, right? That really needs purpose. And you know, to your point about how you know these companies are trying to transform uh, the future of work, and it also feels like. You know, it's a time now where destiny is kind of tapping people like you on the shoulder and companies like this on the shoulder to say, wow, how, how do we do this? And, you know, given that challenge that you just presented, right, it's like this is a reality that we haven't done enough, right, in this, in this space of broadening, you could say widening the net, but really, you know, uh, building the team in a bigger way, right, where we have these diverse voices uh, and so, you know, curious, where do you see the future, uh, you know, going in that regard? Um, you know, what, what's, what's encouraging for you, uh, where you see, you know, kind of highlights that, 
that we can amplify? I think that uh, I have a fundamental belief um, with a career that spans, you know, public relations and private sector uh, growth at all costs, um, and then seeing the uh, the post COVID aftermath of philanthropy trying to rise and, and economic developers rising together in crisis in economic recession or in the pandemic to address um, and then kind of this circular thing of repeating and going back to the way things were and repeating the process all over again so it can't be discouraging. Um, But I do have a framework for how to think about the future um, about connecting dots for real change. Um, And and that's that, well, shift is going to happen, right? And the three things that drive um, people change, like real people change, is is going to be crisis, uh, scandal, and FOMO. And we'd like to think we'd like to think that building a compelling vision for the future is a way we're going to hook people in and get them involved and involved in the movement. They may get involved in the movement, but the the issue is how do you sustain that movement over time? How do you make sure people don't burn out along the way? The leaders don't burn out along the way. And how do you transfer that knowledge to the next generation so they carry that torch? Um, but the compelling vision didn't really work out for Hitler, didn't work out the 10 years I was working in China. But I have seen that FOMO um, is a very positive hook for if you have a, if a group of true leaders working in the trenches, on on the front grounds, um, to do something, people want to be part of that. Um, they want to be part of that, and so uh, probably the three steps I would say to think about what's exciting for happening right now is that you're seeing more and more people, particularly having gone through COVID, which I call the Great Pause, where we kind of assessed: are we are we are we living to work? Or are we working to live? Right. And, and, and what is work-life balance? Well, there is no work-life balance. There's just life. And so what do we want life to be about? And you see more and more people owning their vision, their story, their purpose. And just that first step of, you know, it takes five years to go on that inner work journey to own your story, um, own your shit and your shine. And, and step up to what's possible and then be able to speak and share about that and uh, with others. Um, and then when you find those like-minded people, the next step is how do you incentivize players? How do you, how do you incentivize the players through social capital, through these connections, whether they're childhood connections or work connection, or you just have that vibe that attracts your tribe, right? Um, to kind of go in the same direction together. And then the third step is how do you continue to resource that action, you know, with energy? And we talk so much about financial capital and talent and time, but what we don't ever talk about is it takes trust. It takes trust to sustain um, the change, to keep slogging through the hard times. Um, A lot of leadership talks about resilience. Uh, and, and I think we're all pretty resilient. What we've gone through as, as society, as humanity, n- amount of technological disruptions we've lived through in just the last uh, five years alone, or podcasting on video, right? <laughs> as opposed to being in a person in a studio. Um, and so resourcing that action with 
an energy I like to call big love, um, approaching things with courage, empathy, and mindfulness. And that's, that speaks to a lot of how I was raised in a monastery, went through that big midlife crisis that wakened me from this workaholic life, and then six years in Australia, living as a beach bum, but working more towards my purpose uh, with private um, wealth and, and how they want to allocate their capital for the greater good in the future. And so big love, energy. That's great. Yeah, I love that. It's great um, having you on this episode, and uh, it was a pleasure meeting you a, a month or two ago as well. And hearing your story about how you learned how to swim is <laughs> is top of mind to me. Yes, yes, for, yeah, that's a good story. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm happy to share that story if you want me to. Please do. <laughs> so we talk a lot about courage as being able to resource the action with this energy. It's big love, right? And um, you know, when you know that death is inevitable and all of these things, it makes you take yourself a little bit less seriously. And, um, I was, I found myself living in Australia, um, and having to come face to face with the fact that I lived on the beach and I didn't know how to swim. And now culturally in Australia, kids learn how to swim at three years old. Um, lifeguards are 12, 13 year olds, you know? Um, along the coast, like 90% of Australia's population, 23 million population lives on the coastline. And so you've got this incredible visibility of very young people saving lives, Mm. right? And here I was, you know, I'm 43 now, I don't know how to swim, right? But, um, and so I decided I had to get over this. And um, I called up the local swim school and they're like, well, yeah, yeah, we have swim lessons. Um, how old's your child? <laughs> and I had to say, uh, no, the swim lessons are from me. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we don't have adult swim lessons. And so I had to make a choice. Like, was I going to um, choose to take to learn how to swim, finally get over the sphere, um, or, or back off. And I chose to learn how to swim. And so here I was for six weeks going to class every week with my five-year-old posse and our pool noodles and our little floaties. My instructor was like 12 years old. And it was I love that. such a vulnerable state to be in. Right. You, know? <laughs> you can just feel um, and that see the, vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see the five-year-old with their, their fear and their vulnerability. And I, I'm right there with mm. them. Right? It doesn't matter our age difference. I'm right there feeling the exact same they're feeling and, and we're rooting on each other as we we, we able to uh, develop these technical skills. And so, um, yeah, that's the story of, of, of so good. stepping up to what's possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A week later, I went kayaking on the open water. Um, I love kayaking, but had never for 30 years of my life kayaked in open water. Um, saw dolphins, sharks, seals, and it just opened up a whole new world for me that I didn't know. Was you would possible. have and never thought, experienced wow, that. Wow, did we wait so long? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I just think of the countless <laughs> number of people that live the majority of their life in fear and they never actually cross that threshold of being brave enough to, to try new things or to, to face uh, one of their major challenges. Right. So, 
kudos to to you and that experience. It's it's inspiring. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's almost like you were on a micro level living through a crisis together with your five-year-old posse, but it was kind of self-imposed. <laughs> yeah. And so in that environment, it was like, who cares how old we are? Like, we got to learn how to swim together, you know? We're doing this together. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And and it, it really went back to why did I choose? I had to be self-aware. Why have I chosen for 30 years not to right. learn how to swim, right? And it was this one moment when I was eight years old, I was pushed into the pool by my cousin who I admired most in the world. I looked up to him and as a joke, he pushed me into the deep end of the pool. And all I remembered was my head going underwater, not being able to breathe. And um, when I was going through this form of therapy, um, rapid eye desensitization movement therapy, which they use with a lot of PTSD patients of revisiting a memory and reframing it um, and not getting stuck at the moment of fear. And so all I remembered was nearly drowning, but the reality was I didn't die, right? So how did I get past that? And I didn't remember. I didn't remember how I got out of the pool. I didn't remember even my head coming out of the water. I just remembered that fear of taking out water. And when I went through this therapy, repeating the uh, repeatedly going back to this moment, I started to see that my head did come up above the water. And I saw my cousin laughing, turned away. And I remember thinking, you cannot trust the people that you love. And that was a wow. groundbreaking realization that, that, wow, that has subconsciously driven so many of my choices in my life. So here I was thinking I just wanted to learn how to swim, but I got the gift of seeing when a thought formed at a very young age, and it's the eight-year-old thought, right? It's an eight-year-old thought um, of you cannot trust the people that you love. Mm. And then and then the second one was um, how did I eventually get out? I, I made my way over. I remembered finally that I made my way over to the side of the pool, pulled myself out, and there was no one had even known what happened. Maybe the whole incident took all of five minutes, three seconds. I don't know. In my mind, in my eight-year-old mind, it was a lifetime of horror, right? Right. Um, and when I came out of it, I realized, oh, no one even knew. And I, I formulated a second thought, which is, I have to do everything myself. Mm. And those two thoughts were so powerful that they created a life of decisions, you know, not just choice to not ever go back into the water, but so many decisions in my career and my life that didn't really serve me and who I wanted to really be. Um, and so just that self-awareness of that and the, the experience of learning how to swim with that five-year-old posse, right. that tribe, that, and just being in the trenches with them and we're going through this together. And coming through on the other side just made me realize, you know, I don't need to let, I don't need to own that story anymore. I need to let that go. And, and I always have a choice to make something different, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Thank you for sharing <laughs> Fun that. Fun story. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, and it's inspiring to see because that is a lot of work to delve back into that memory and not only kind of like re-experience some of the, the visceral feelings of it, but stay with that feeling long enough to kind of continue 
with curiosity, sort of sifting through the learnings and the embers from from that experience. And then, I mean, those two those two formative principles that sort of distilled on your mind, that's a lot of work to figure that stuff out. That's just a really good example, Bonnie, of that reflection that can really allow you to, to free yourself from a lot of those, those ideas that don't really serve you, as you said. Yeah. And so when we talk about how do we connect the dots for real change, it's about, well, first we have to be real with ourselves, right? Right. <laughs> about the real situation and then be in community with other people who are also being real. And, um, and then that's how we can begin to have those real conversations for real change. Bonnie, I feel like we're, we're in the midst of a, a Jedi. Uh, you've, you've shared a lot of wisdom uh, just now. And one of the things that you, and I, I, you were going towards, you know, getting into this just now is, and I, and I think we've seen this in some of the great leaders uh, in our time is uh, they've gone through deep valleys. And you mentioned crisis as one of, right, the factors and of the future. And, uh, you know, it, it's, we talk about facing our fears, right? And there's studies that show if, if somebody's gone through, if, if they faced it, right, if they faced death or if they've gone through it and you've, you've essentially faced death when you've gone through something like cancer, right? And, you know, it becomes a definitive moment, it seems, where you come out of that. And I think each of us may have had other experiences in our lives, you know, maybe prior to COVID. I know I had one that was earth shattering for me. And so as COVID was happening, which was a collective crisis, right? We're all going through the valley together. Um, it was hard, but I'd already gone through a version of hell myself. And so I was saying, this isn't so bad. I mean, this is hard, but like, it's not as bad as what I've been through before uh, or more recently. Those kinds of things can help set the course of our leadership. Uh, one of the greatest leaders I ever worked with had gone through cancer and he, his whole outlook on life had shifted completely. And it was in such a way where his team felt this inspiration and uh, a sense of humility that he had to the universe and that just deeply affected them almost to them, like to where they'd be moved with tears almost, right? So what you said about big love, like that love that people feel, when you've gone through those valleys, what has that meant for the mountains that you've you know climbed or you know, when you've gotten to the top, how has that journey affected you um, and maybe in other ways? and. You know, what, what would you say to people too that are maybe struggling with something or they're seeing the collective struggle and, and what, what can they do, right, with that? Yeah, I think that, you know, curiosity is probably a big driver in, in, in all of that. Um, like all of us, I think, on this call, we're, we're uh, lifelong learners. Uh, we approach things with curiosity. And so when we go through something like that, we're asking questions and why I love loves the name of this podcast um so many of us have been taught that we have to have the answers and when we go through something like that we realize oh we don't have the answers we just have questions <laughs> we have questions and more questions and um the, the approaching uh life with that curiosity of asking the questions you find more people who are also asking the same questions and that makes this uh the next valley a little bit less, um, um, a little bit easier to bear. You know, we know uh, one of the first noble truths that we talk about in Buddhism um, is that death is inevitable, right? Death, taxes, and AI, 
I like to say, are, are inevitable. And so there's really no use debating, fighting it. You know, our health, entire healthcare system, the way we train our doctors is all about saving people from death, but it's something we really can't change. Mm. And, and so just sitting with that fundamental truth um, and then coming at it with curiosity is like, well, if death is inevitable, hey, what does that mean around for the future of healthcare? How would, how would that shift our perspective on how we approach healthcare in terms of longevity or quality of life or looking after each other and, and how much how many hours we we work to make a living and um, it's just those this starting with that question allows us to shift um, and and hopefully um, finds us the tribe of people like nine people to kind of get through the next valleys together or climb the mountain together right. Mm. Bonnie, do you think that there's sometimes in in the Western world kind of a dissonance between what many people want and then that that idea of of reality or just accepting things more as they are? I I'm just interested to know more about how your your upbringing in the monastery has informed the way that you approach not only life but but also you know, your work as well. Yeah. People, people ask me all the time, like what, if you could sum up in a couple words, what, what was it like living in a monastery? I'm like, well, it's hard to sum up in a few words, but if, if I had to do it, I would say um, my six years growing up in a monastery at those formative years really taught me that it was a Petri dish for life, that a group of people from different cultures, different walks of life came together because they had this utopian vision of society. But the reality was that politics got in the way, you know, people's personal stuff got in the way. And, um, and, and you had this mini, mini community that was a replica of real life. And um, I think being exposed to that at a young age where, um, you know, we, we had the benefit being in our being in that location of having theology and philosophy professors from Stanford and Berkeley be our teachers and um, and no television, no music. I mean, I had my Sony Walkman, right, that I was hiding from the nuns, but um, you know, they didn't know it at the time. Um, and we we had the space without distractions to have critical thinking type of conversations uh, that most young people don't get exposed to until they reach university. And so I would say just um, inviting that space to look at life, world, um, as this is an experiment. Um, We know we're going to die. (laughs) We know that suffering is inevitable. How do we use knowledge transfer to create wealth and ownership and equity, to distribute power. So there is less unnecessary suffering um, in the world. And, and, um, and recognize that we may start out with the best of intentions and we may want to um, design everything according to plan, but that's not how humanity operates, right? And I've always said our biggest competitive advantage is humanity. When people say, oh, the AI robots are going to take over our jobs in the world, they're like, well, uh, they want because we have love 
and we have creativity. And those two things are very irrational. Um, but what's also true about those two things is that there's got to be a, there's a destructive nature to it in order for the creation to happen, right? Um, they're just two sides of the same coin. And so I'd say my, my life in the monastery helped me to see that at an early age and then experience it first 15 years chasing material wealth, going through this big life changing event and, and then coming back to not, not the monastery life per se, but how do we integrate all that messiness of real life with our grand vision, our story, our purpose of why we're here, you know, um, and what we want to build for the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm, I'm like, I feel like I'm transported to a, a, a Buddhist monastery. I, there's one in, uh, there's one in Oahu in Hawaii. Ian knows, I think he's been there. Um, and you go there and you feel like your soul is so still it's up against the valley, right? It's just like your, your soul is so still in that place. And there's, um, these koi fish in the, in the water and, uh, a swan, you know, swans that kind of swim around and it feels like you're having a conversation with nature itself. And what you're describing, I love the contrast, right? Between, because when we talk about things like AI or, you know, whatever the news is, the news cycle is, is cranking out, you know, on a daily basis, we tend to, it tends to create anxiety, right? And this feeling that, we're in a battle, right? We're fighting these things versus what you're describing, which is, well, what if we have a conversation with death, right? What if we have a conversation about how we can co-create or collaborate in a way that's different to build something based on natural principles, right? Instead of, instead of a fight, it's a, it's a collaboration. It's a co-creation with these things that we would otherwise fear, but they're realities. I love it. It's 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 a real it's a big insight I think for a lot of people. I uh, I'll just um, talk about two amazing mentors I've had in my life. Um, when I went through the cancer, I decided to take a couple years off of um, working in finance or private sector business, and had the opportunity to meet um, a, a man who ran a twenty-five-year-old Outback leadership company called Out, Outback Initiatives. And he was a Zimbabwean man that had spent most of his career in military special forces and uh, teaching people how to kill and killing people. And then he happened to marry this great Australian girl, moved to Australia. Um, but he was he was reminded that his choice to choose a career of um, killing and teaching others to kill. Um, originated from a really traumatic childhood where he was rejected by his family and he was like the jungle jungle boy, right? He kind of grew up in, in the outdoors and communed with nature and with animals and, and that that's how you heal. That's how you get back to your real purpose. Um, so he established this company um, over 25 years ago to take ordinary people like you and me out into the bush take away their phones, their wallets, their titles, put them with a group of people um, out in the bush and just give them the space and the time, um, you know, kind of describe it as um, less survivor, more amazing race <laughs> where people come together and they don't know where they're going to sleep at night and they don't know where, um, where, where the, they go through a series of challenges together as a team and under pressure 
recognize, you know, what their strengths and their gifts are, um, some of the biases they may have about themselves and how they're perceived by others. And that self-awareness then shifts. Is the narrative or story I've been telling about myself true? And am I really living my life to that purpose, right? And so for him to have created this immersive experiential learning vehicle um, to to be connected with nature, um, it was just a fantastic experience. I remember that we took out a corporate group. Uh, they were really quite struggling. I mean, much of you, your guys' work, the Brave course around working uh, with leaders at the top. And it was, we had the old guard and the new guard. The old guard was like the tough bottoms down and the new guard was really like the younger generation coming in. And um, the, one of the senior executives, the old guard, um, had to be abseiled off <laughs> um, a cliff in, you know, towards the ocean. And um, his, his uh, employee was the one who had to actually let down the rope. And at that critical moment, the senior executive said, I have a fear of heights. I can't do this. And his employee coached him all the way to get over that cliff. And it transformed their entire relationship in an instant for that the old guard to recognize his vulnerability and to be able to share that and to be able to invite or open his delve up for his employee to then um, support him on that personal transformation journey. Um, and so the rest is history with that organization that gone on to do some amazing, incredible things. But I just want to share one Outback initiatives, you know, you know, talent, uh, technology, nature, how do we bring these systems, how do we bring that structure together, how do we bring people together, and then kind of wrap it with story. Um, the other group I'm involved with is, have you guys heard of the Kite Surfing DC here, Bill Tai? He's associated with Richard, Richard Branson's uh, kite surfing crew. Of uh, so ACTI stands for um, athletes, conservationists, technologists, artists, and innovators. And it's this this uh, misfits, the collective misfits of very different types of groups um, uh, who go to the UN Davos Economic Forum, who go to very rural places like Australia. Um, um, and around the world, kite surfing and snow kiting and doing extreme sports. But um, when we gather in conference, we don't have our titles either. We're in nature. We're pushing the limits of our physical abilities, our mental and emotional abilities in community with others. And we don't have our normal titles. We're in bikinis and board shorts. And um, you don't know if the person sitting next to you is a billionaire or a scrappy founder or an artist. Um, and I have seen time and time again with Acti, this brain trust form, this very organic brain trust form where someone is vulnerable enough to share a challenge that they're facing or a dream that they have. And then just immediately, you know, five to eight people wrap around and, and, and uh, say, oh, how can we help? How can we lift you up? You know, what do you need? Who do you need to know um, to move that, to get through this challenge or to help you get closer to your dream? Or, and, wow. and what's most fun is how do we participate? How do we right. join in? <laughs> you know, what, what you're describing is <clears throat> these very intentional kind of um, 
outside experiences that leaders and professionals can kind of transform and make better, stronger connections with each other uh, through empathy, self-awareness. It's what I'm hearing. Um, how can organizations look to cultivate these type of experiences where you don't have to go outbound, where maybe you, uh, leaders and cultures can be more intentional about the experiences that they're crafting internally with their teams and their people to kind of disrupt the, the typical power structure, the hierarchies that exist. What, what do you recommend there for an average company or even a startup that just needs to disrupt themselves experience wise? What, what are some experiences we can explore together that, you know, could, could have a similar type of uh, feeling and leaders could walk away, you know, changed. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, so what I'm thinking, what comes to mind is um, during the 2008 recession, um, after I was working in private sector, I had to lay off like hundreds of people in in the US and Asia manufacturing. I decided to go work for the Economic Development Administration under the Obama administration. And um, budgets were cut from a lot of the nonprofits and public service sector agencies. And, you know, the joke was that government always likes to ask the, the, the corporations and the small business, how can the government help? And most times the answer is, well, get out of the way, right? Um, but truly, at the time, um, there, were, there was funding and there were resources to help people who are out of jobs, explore new careers, um, uh, start new businesses. Um, and, and so there was this di huge disconnect, right, between, you know, the 30 agencies that were working in this space and then the small business owner who was just struggling to make payroll, the corporations that were ha having to deal massive layoffs and figure out how to uh, reposition themselves. And um, I just saw as an outsider coming from pri private sector into public sector, how we, we all want to get to this greater good. We want to allocate this capital. We want to help people get back into jobs again, but there's this huge disconnect because there's all these players. So how do we, how we bridge those connections in a short and meaningful and experiential way? And so I started holding these um, monthly breakfasts where there was no agenda other than to just get people together to know who the left arm, the right arm was and how we pool resources. Um, but what really shifted the dialogue for all of us to kind of get on the same page was I would start off each breakfast by inviting um, your constituents of someone in society that we served. And so whether we were funding um, job skill training, we would I would invite someone who had just been laid off and he had a mortgage and three children. And, um, and, and we invited him to share the story. If we were trying to get kids who graduated into new jobs, I would invite a student to come and share their journey and their story. And so I think that uh, having that person, the, the person that we serve, share their story firsthand rather than be, be their translator or their interpreter um, allows everyone to experience it. Um, and, and be reminded then who do we really serve 
at the end of all of this, right? Who do we really serve? And and we're complex creatures, but our brains can't handle more than three things at a time, right? The power of three. And so, um, what are what are the what is the simplest, most uh, efficient way to get people to cut through their own individual biases? Maybe the politics of the corporation that may be going on at the same time. Um, confusion um, it is just being reminded again who it is that we serve at the end of the day, and uh, it's maybe a question we don't ask enough. I love that. Yeah, it's so simple, right? But it's so powerful. Um, I'm thinking of a leader who's uh, who the, the people were asking. You know, there was a kind of a feeling in this company about hierarchy, and uh, you know, there's uh, people were deferring, you know, trying to just kind of wait, just waiting for somebody to make a decision. And, uh, the, uh, this leader asked the question, he said, who's the most important person in this company? And, uh, you know, they, they said, well, you, right. You're the you know, CEO, right. And okay, well, or, or the board, right. Or, or somebody up at the top, he said, no. And, uh, and they kind of went down the list to so like, who, well, it's not you. And who is it? Is it the VPs? You know, who is it? And eventually he said what you said, which was, it's, it's the person we're serving, right? It's, it's, it's that person, right? Um, who's on the front line. Um, I love that. Yeah. That's, uh, I think the other, yeah, as, as we've been talking about this, these kind of experience, these moments of, of transformation and connecting dots, it feels like we're also at a particular moment, right? Post pandemic, people are, you know, people were also, are all already feeling relatively disengaged, right? Th those Gallup numbers stayed steady at like 70%, right? People were, you know, kind of unplugged from work mentally. Now, you know, numbers have risen, if anything. And, you know, they're also at home. They're, they brought their work home uh, in, in the sense that it's, 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 it's there. So they're, they're probably, at, they're, a lot of people are asking this question of, well, you know, what, what kind of experience do I want to have with all of this? And, I think what you're suggesting about connecting dots, you know, for real change in people's lives is it's, it, it is a simple thing because a conversation and being brave, you know, sharing our stories, um, it, it, it's, it's a simple thing, but we, we can do this in the context that we have. And maybe we've just gotten a lot more comfortable now with, um, yeah, video calls. I mean, I remember a time when it was like, wow, we have, you know, we have video conferencing, we'll be in the future. Right. And then, it, and then it showed up. <laughs> And then the technology showed up and nobody used it, right? I, I was at Apple and we, you know, we invented FaceTime and people would, we would do video conference calls, but we would just do audio. Like we would, nobody would be on video. And I thought, this is odd. Like we are the ones that, you know, we, but now we're all very, you know, much more comfortable with it. And it feels like this is a time where we can lean in to what you're saying as to how we show up, you know, personally, our, our mind, hearts, spirit, uh, you know, to connect with others. And I guess, you know, with that, where have moments been where you felt, you know, uh, you, you've mentioned some of those where you felt connected in that way, you know, maybe other, other things that come to mind about, to Ian's point, pe things that people can do uh, to lean in, you know, even more. Well, I'm going to answer your question with the question, <laughs> which is just, how do we show up so that people feel seen, heard, and valued? And 
whether that's the public sector or the private sector or nonprofit, we're all driven by that. You know, there isn't work, there isn't life, there's just life. And that's what people want to feel at the end of the day is how do we, how do we feel seen? How do we feel heard? And how do we feel valued? Um, and then on the other side, how do I show up for those people in that way? Um, some, a lot of the work I've done is, is coaching, um, startup founders, raising the first round of capital and, um, scaling business leaders going through a turnaround. And one of the first questions I always ask them is, um, can you share three moments, the three life-changing moments? And one is a moment where you were in flow, where time stood still, you had unlimited energy, you we can call it peak productivity, but you could also say unlimited creativity. Um, and you were just in the zone, right? Uh, what was that moment for you? Whether it was work or life, it doesn't matter. But that's that's the anchor, right? We talk so much about triggers that cause trauma, but what about the um, reframing memory cues or attaching to to cues that, that allow us to trust, allow us to engage, allow us to to act, show up the way we really want to in life. Um, and so one remembering that you no know, moment of flow, right? And how, how do we replicate that again in our interactions? The second one is belonging. Um, when was time you felt like you truly belonged? You didn't, you could just be yourself. Um, and there is a sense of that joy and happiness, right, from being in community with others. And the third was uh, one of the most challenges, challenging things you went through in your life. And whether you rose to the challenge or you were defeated by it doesn't matter. Um, but that is, that is uh, an incredible memory in which you can draw power from um, to, sh- to shape um, how you meet challenges in the future. And so it, it goes back to what I was saying um, about death being inevitable. And there's there's a great group of people all around the world, just like TED Talks and um, uh, called Death Cafes, um, where people just get together and they talk about death. And by talking about death, they're actually able to live life. And, um, and these three moments of flow, belonging, and how we get through challenges, um, learning what that is for me, learning your story about what what they are for you, whether that's in a corporate setting or trying to get through something together, or um, or just you know one on one where a founder is trying to do something they've never done and disrupt an industry or grow a market. Um, these are the things we draw power from. Hmm. Yeah, and though we've collectively passed through a lot of adversity over the last few years one thing that i think we can be united in gratitude for is that there does seem to be an emerging awareness and we would even call it a movement of humanity and leadership and a recognition that by pausing to acknowledge what motivates all of us at the end of the day. And, and just like you said, it's not complicated. It's, it's very, they're very simple, basic needs that we all have that that can actually be the strongest accelerator for 
discovery, for innovation, for finding peace in our communities and in our countries. And I think we're excited to see the prospects of, of what can happen with love being more at the forefront of our conversations, even within companies. So Bonnie, what, what's, what's the most exciting thing to you right now about the future as you think about you know, your own work or even just things that you're observing in, in the broader landscape? What, what gives you FOMO about the future? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, over the weekend, I was, um, I'm sure all of you guys are following. Uh, I was uh, with Stand with Asians and Gold House at the official Bay Area um, Asian Oscars watch party. And we celebrated history um, by seeing um, just amazing, incredible talent, reach recognition, see representation, right? Um, but these two organizations came together, Gold House kind of started, you may know them as the organization of um, artist founders and um, who want to see more Asian American representation in film. And um, they came together with Stand With Asians, which is a grassroots advocacy group that came together to respond to the wave of Asian hate crimes during um, the pandemic. Um, to just bring good people together who had this shared purpose of wanting to see representation on the big screen and empowering it with action um, and showing up at every box office opening of an Asian film and getting all their friends and family to buy 10 or more tickets um, and, and changing the numbers, right? It's, so it's story, it's structure, um, but it's energy, right? It's just an energy behind that movement. Um, and it was just so gratifying for all of us to see that happen on a big screen. And Michelle Yeoh came to San Francisco. She did her Everything Everywhere All at Once um, global premiere from San Francisco. Uh, these two groups came together to launch that, and we were there to celebrate. Um, and so it was just really gratifying to be in community um, and, and celebrate that. So that's what's exciting to me about the future is being able to have this big purpose um, and start small with a group of people who are really committed. And then it just grows, just grows organically from there, you know? Awesome, Bonnie. Wanted to give you one, one last opportunity to share anything that we may have missed during this conversation. I think we'll close with my personal favorite motto. I mean, Picasso, I don't care much for his art, but he said something really beautiful, which is learn the rules of the game like a pro but break them like an artist. Uh, and I think that's the opportunity, the challenge for all of us is to not give up our power being a cog in the game. This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to Bonnie for the conversation today. You can find more info about Bonnie and her work at her website, bonnielin.com. Additional links are in the show notes as well. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. 
The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of Brave Core LLC. Thanks for being with us.